Let's turn again this morning in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Every trade has its own list of credentials that are required in order to work in that field. We understand that. And so when you go to search for a new job and you brush up your resume, you're careful to tailor the things you put on that resume to do the best you can to highlight whatever experience you have that best matches those credentials you know are needed for that particular job. The same thing happens on the other side of the equation when we are evaluating uh, certain businesses that we might hire for different things. We look at their credentials. We go online. Now there are reviews for everything from doctors, carpenters, mechanics, restaurants, you name it. You can find reviews to see their credentials. And we review those credentials and we make our choices accordingly because the bottom line is credentials matter. When you sit in the waiting room at the doctor's office, you want to see medical degrees on the wall. And when you enter a restaurant, you want to see some certificates that they've recently passed their health code inspections. When you hire a mechanic, you want personal references that this is a a trustworthy mechanic that gives fair prices. And if the necessary credentials aren't there, then you walk out the door and you go to another place where those credentials are met. And that rings true of our passage this morning because the author of Hebrews has just made an outlandish claim about the Lord Jesus Christ. He has said that Jesus is our great high priest. Not just a priest, but our great high priest, meaning that he not only fulfills the role of high priest, but he is superior to every other high priest, including Aaron himself. That's a bold claim. And for the original audience that was likely composed largely of Jewish Christians who understood the law. They understood the practices of the sacrificial system. They understood the priesthood and the role of the high priest. To make the claim that Jesus is the great high priest likely brought up some questions, some questions they wanted answers to. Even though what we've studied in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4 are are very encouraging truths, That Jesus is the great high priest, and because of that, we ought to hold on to faith, and we ought to draw near in prayer. Though those things are very encouraging, these Jewish Christians have some questions. How is it exactly that the author can say with such confidence that Jesus has the credentials necessary to be not just a high priest, but the great high priest? And it's because of those questions that the author now launches into a long explanation proving the claims that he's made about Jesus Christ. You remember all of this takes place under the the banner of the theme of the book as a whole, the superiority of Christ. And we've been looking at this section that begins in chapter 4 verse 14 and runs all the way to chapter 7 verse 28 proving that Jesus is superior to the priesthood. In the last two weeks, we looked at verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4, and the author's purpose there primarily was to encourage us and to motivate us by giving us the application. What does it mean for us that Jesus is the great high priest? And let's read those verses because they really stand in the backdrop of what we'll study this morning. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, by way of reminder, the author says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, in these verses, we see the introduction of this theme that will stick with with us now for a while. That is that as our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. As our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. He introduces this theme by giving us two reactions that we all should have to the truth that Jesus is our great high priest. The first reaction is that we ought to hold fast to faith. Hold on to your faith in Christ. Because 
He tells us of his location. He ministers at the very right hand of God in the heavens. He is the God-man, fully man and fully God in one person. He explained that he identifies perfectly with our weaknesses because he took on full humanity, and yet, at the same time, he had a perfect life, never experiencing sin, never giving in to temptation even for a moment. That led to a second reaction that should be ours. We ought to draw near in prayer. So we hold fast to faith, and we draw near in prayer when we ought to pray with confidence as we come to the throne of grace, understanding that as we do that as believers, we receive his timely help. Now that's the application of these truths, and we need to keep those applications in mind as the author turns his attention now to proving what he's just said. Throughout the book of Hebrews already, he's been very cautious and careful to ground everything he says in the scriptures to show us that these things are true. We're going to begin a journey of that proof of this topic here in chapter 5. Let me just give you the structure of the first 10 verses of chapter uh, 5 because this is where we'll be over the next few weeks. He's going to give us two explanations of what he's just said. The first explanation we'll study this morning, and that is this, the role of the high priest. Verses 1 to 4. It's going to tell us about this, the specifics of the role itself and how the high priest functioned under the Old Covenant. Then he'll go to a second explanation, Jesus' credentials as high priest. Verses 5 to 10. So this is really a, a systematic way of proving what he said. He's going to begin by reminding us this is what the high priest was responsible to do. This is who he was. And this is how Christ has perfectly fulfilled and even surpassed those credentials or requirements. But today, we simply begin with the first four verses, looking at how the high priest was to function under the Old Covenant. Let's read together chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness, and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. This is the first explanation of what he said about Jesus as the great high priest, and the explanation is the role of the high priest. And specifically, two details, two primary details that he wants to hone in on as we think about the old covenant ministry of the high priest. The first detail is, in fact, his ministry, the priest's ministry, verses 1 to 3. He begins with the word for in verse 1, which means this is flowing right out of what he's just said at the end of chapter 4. And that's important for us to mention because, as I've said, he's now proving the things he said there in those verses. But in order for us to, to really feel the impact of this, we have to constantly keep in mind the applications we've already studied. So hold fast to faith and draw near to prayer. That was the application of that great truth. And as we go through this argument here in verses 1 to 4, the temptation is going to be to think that these are just cold historical facts. We just need to get through this and get on to the good stuff. But that's not true. Because remember, often in the scriptures, I would say probably more commonly in the scriptures, the authors will build anticipation towards the application. So the application will often come at the end. But that's flipped here. We got the application first, and now he's going to take us through the explanation. But the intention is still the same. With each of these explanations or proofs of what he said, we ought to hold more tightly to our faith and be more encouraged to come into the throne room of God in prayer. And so keep those in your mind as we walk through these uh, arguments that he's going to give to us. That will be our task. Now the first aspect of the ministry of the high priest that he's going to focus on here is that of sacrifice. Sacrifice. The role of the high priest was to make sacrifices. And he begins here in verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men 
is appointed on behalf of men. We're going to stop there. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. Now, this emphasizes something we've already mentioned, and that is it was essential that the high priest was a human man. He had to be a human being. The high priest was not self-appointed, but it says that he is appointed. That is, God himself appointed the high priest. He's going to make a point of that later on in these verses. But this appointment was not just to a, a, a respectful position, although it was that. It was an appointment to a ministry. These high priests had a very specific ministry that they were to carry out. And we know that here because he says they're appointed on behalf of men. They're appointed on behalf of men. That is, this is a ministry of representation. A ministry of representation. It was a calling uh, for certain men to serve in this very special role in which they would be a representative on behalf of the entire nation. The entire nation of Israel depended on this high priest to represent them in a certain way. The idea then is that all the people had this great need And it had to be brought before God, but only one was chosen to represent the people to come and meet that need. It clarifies why the high priest had to be a man. Why did this have to be a human being? He had to identify with those he was representing. To represent them, he had to be as they were. And that's exactly what the high priest was. The high priest was never an angel, certainly not an animal. The high priest had to be a human being, a human man, so that he could represent those who were like him, those who had the same human nature. Now, in these first four verses, the author's not going to say anything directly about Christ. He's going to talk about Christ in the coming verses. But he certainly intends for us to be connecting some mental dots. Okay, so he intends for us to be thinking on what he's already said and how that connects to what he's saying now. Obviously, He's just proven to us that Jesus is the God-man, right? He identified with us. He became man, and we're supposed to be thinking on that, making these mental connections that, okay, Jesus has that credential. He, He became a man to share our nature so that he could be our representative. But then it brings up the question, before whom... Did the high priest represent the people? This ministry of intercession, of representation between the nation and someone else. Who specifically is he talking about here? Look back at the text. In things pertaining to God. He's appointed on behalf of men, specifically in things pertaining to God. Now this again brings up the idea of separation. As we've already discussed, under the old covenant... There were physical, uh, visual barriers set up between the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and the people. As you came to the temple, there were all sorts of physical barriers, but even the barrier of the priesthood itself. You, if you were not from uh, the tribe of Levi and from the bloodline of Aaron specifically, you weren't going into the Holy of Holies. You were going to stay at a place that was further removed from that. This idea that that God appointed one to be a representative in things pertaining to God brings up this idea of separation between God and the people. The people needed to come to God, but they were unable to do so. But the symbolism here goes even deeper because there was one particular aspect of the people's relationship towards God that was the centerpiece of the high priest's role of representation. And that aspect is sin. The necessity of the high priest's ministry of representation before God on behalf of the people was entirely owed to the fact that man's sin separated him from God. That separation is the word sin. That's why they couldn't freely run into the presence of God. It was man's sinful rebellion against God that caused this breach in the first place. And so the author now says that explicitly. Look back at verse 1 again, that this priest is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. And now he says specifically what his job was. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. To, To offer gifts and sacrifices specifically for sins. 
This was the chief ministry of the high priest. He represented the people because of their sin and to deal with their sins. This sacrificial system included gifts that could be brought to God that weren't blood sacrifices. You could bring a grain offering or a wine offering. But here in context, when he is talking about bringing gifts for sins, the idea here is blood sacrifice. That that an animal had to be brought and his blood had to be shed. It's important to remember that the sacrificial system was a bloody business. We, we shouldn't whitewash this. We, we have to think about it as it really was. The sacrificial system, there's no way around it. It was a bloody business. It was intended to be that way. God meant for it to be a bloody business. Blood sacrifice was a daily occurrence under the Old Covenant. It had to be because sin was a daily occurrence. The day began and the day ended with a prescribed sacrifice. Animals could be brought throughout the day for sacrifice. Throughout the year, there were feasts and festivals that were prescribed for the people to come and to bring sacrifices. And of course, the pinnacle of that sacrificial system on an annual basis would have been the Day of Atonement, the special day that we've spoken of already in which the high priest would would take the blood of that sacrifice as the representative of the people and walk into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle the blood there on the mercy seat, the physical representation at that time of the presence of God on earth. The high priest alone could enter, but he must enter only carrying blood. Think on that. See, the sacrificial system highlighted several important theological realities. More than we'll have time to mention this morning, but think on three in particular, three realities that the the sacrificial system highlighted. One, it made clear man's separation from God. Everything about it made this separation very clear. You can't come near. You can't come near to me. Secondly, it was a a continual reminder that death is the consequence of sin. Uh, You sin, and something has to die. Thirdly, I made clear the truth that man's sin could only be atoned for by blood sacrifice. You're separated because of sin. Your sin has brought the punishment of death, and the only way that your sin can be atoned for is blood. Blood must be shed. This is what God says explicitly in Leviticus 19.11. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. What he's saying there is the blood is the the physical representation of the life of that animal given as a sacrifice, and therefore the blood must be brought in to make atonement, symbolic of the, the life taken, given for sin. So my point is this, when you think of the sacrificial system, when you picture it visually, it ought to turn your stomach. It ought to turn your stomach. Not the theological realities, but the physical picture of what really happened. You should picture a very bloody scene with animals being slaughtered, gutted, butchered, and burned. That's the sacrificial system. Imagine the smells associated with an an all-day sacrificial offering of animal after animal being brought and slaughtered. Think about the blood and the smell of the burning flesh going up before Yahweh. And you may say, no, I don't don't really want to think on that. I get squeamish. I don't want to picture that. But understand, you, you have to. You have to. That's the author's point. He wants us to understand the significance of the high priest's role of offering blood sacrifice because only when you understand that picture will you be able to translate it into the magnitude of what it means that Jesus Christ is your great high priest. And so as uncomfortable as it is, I want you to go there in your mind. Picture a sacrifice, an animal's blood shed, that animal cut apart and burned as an offering to God because of your sin. 
understand that when you brought a sacrifice to the priest, you didn't just hand over the animal and then step aside and let him take care of the dirty business. No, that the law prescribed that you were to come and you were to put your hand on the head of that animal and with the other hand take the knife and slit the throat of that animal. The priest then holding a bowl to catch the blood. You would have had to been involved with the offering of that sacrifice. And the laying on of the hand on the head of the animal was symbolic to say, I am the sinner and this animal is taking my place for my sin. This is Leviticus 4.4. 4. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. That animal acted as a substitute, and all of this symbolism, the blood, all of it, was absolutely intentional on the part of God. It highlighted just how devastating the consequences of sin really are. It made clear that though humanity was plunged into this situation by our original parents, it's not just their fault because we have added our sins to this mess over and over again. The sacrificial system, as we said, had to be a daily reality because the debt was just not just a debt of our original parents. It was, it was a debt that kept mounting and mounting and mounting. No sooner had a sacrifice been made for the sins that had been committed that there was a new list of sins being made that now needed atonement. And so it was that the sacrificial system had to happen day in and day out. Because under that system, the sacrifice of that animal was not for future sin. It was for sins that had already been committed. And no sooner had those sins been wiped out than there were more that needed atonement. And the point here is that in the gap stood one man, the high priest. The reason that that sacrifice, particularly here, the image of the, of the Day of Atonement, could be brought into the presence of God was because God had appointed one, only one, but he had appointed one who was qualified and allowed to bring that blood before his presence and offer sacrifice for the people. This was the high priest's primary ministry. And again, the author's anticipating that we haven't forgotten what he's already said. Because there should already be all kinds of dots and connections flaring up in our minds. Particularly, think all the way back to chapter 2. Think on what we just discussed from this passage and now compare it to what the author said in chapter 2, verse 17. Speaking of Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, again, perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God. He had to be made a man that in things pertaining to God he might represent us and make perfect satisfaction for our sins. You now see the connection point, if it wasn't already obvious. He's arguing the truthfulness of all that he said and all that he will say based off of these key facts of the priesthood that were commonly known, perhaps even commonly known this morning. This message is not really intended to be full of new information. It's to cause us to, to dwell deeply on old information and have a new, fresh application of those truths. But in addition to sacrifice, there's a second aspect of the ministry of the high priest that's mentioned here, and that's the necessity of identification. Identification. Not only did he make sacrifices, but he was able to identify with those for whom he ministered. Look back now at uh, the text in chapter 5, verse 2. It says, still speaking of the high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Understand this word here, this phrase, deal gently, is different than the Greek word sympathizes that we've been studying the last couple of weeks. There's a key difference here. The definition of this phrase, deal gently, is to moderate one's feelings. He's able to moderate his feelings, control his feelings so that he responds in gentleness is the idea. 
The high priest's task was not to look down on the people or stand above the people in pride, but to to get on their level, to be gentle towards them, not to berate them as they brought their sacrifices for sins. And specifically, the text says there were two kinds of people that would come offering sacrifice. There were the ignorant and the misguided. The ignorant refer to those people who sin because of a lack of knowledge. They just, they don't know or they don't understand fully what was required and they therefore commit sin. Sins of ignorance are no doubt sin, but God offered mercy for those sins. That Sacrifice could be made for those sins. Also, secondly, the, there was another kind of person who would come making a sacrifice called the wayward The wayward here commits sin not out of ignorance, but out of deception. They've been tricked by the the shiny object of temptation, and they've given in. They knew what they were doing was wrong, but they didn't sin out of a a hardened heart, spitefully against God, but because they were deceived by temptation. And so the high priest is to receive them with gentleness and offer that sacrifice to God that they have brought Now, just quickly, let me mention, there is a third category of sin mentioned in the Old Testament. It's called high-handed sin, or sins of defiance. This is mentioned in places like Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31. It says, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Now those in this category of high-handed sin or defiant sin are are not sinning out of ignorance and they're not sinning because they just tripped up over a deception. These are those who have truly hardened their hearts against God. They, with gritted teeth, know what they are doing and they refuse to submit their wills to God. For that person, the sacrifice is not offered because they've not humbled themselves in repentance before God. By the way, as a quick side note, when we think of church discipline in the church today, we ought to think of that kind of high-handed, defiant sin. We don't just discipline people out of the church because they sin. If we did, we wouldn't have a church because we all sinned. Church discipline is reserved for those who, with gritted teeth, with full knowledge, continue in hard-hearted rebellion. That is when church discipline kicks in, and it's honestly for their good. It is the discipline of the Lord to help them see the hardness of their heart and the consequences for that, that they might repent and be restored to the Lord. But why is it that the high priest was able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward? What gave him this capacity? Well, he explains it now in the middle of verse 2. He can deal gently since he himself also is beset with weakness. Since he himself also is beset with weakness, it would be arrogant for the high priest to respond with pride because he's a sinner just like these in this case. We're talking, remember, about the actual system of the high priesthood under the Old Covenant. That priest was a sinner. In fact, the Greek word here is is the idea of he was was clothed with weakness, beset. It, it, It covered him fully. The high priest had compassion and gentleness because at times he himself had been ignorant and wayward. He too needed the forgiveness offered by God. And it's here that the author wants us to be perceptive to the fact that there are certain important similarities between Jesus and the priesthood, but there are also very important dissimilarities. There is continuity and discontinuity on purpose. Jesus has the appropriate credentials. He's similar in the ways he has to be similar, but he's very dissimilar in ways that are important for us as well. Jesus, too, as we've already seen, experienced full human weakness in the sense that he was a real human being with a real human nature, but his experience of weakness differed from the high priest in this crucial way. And the author goes on to explain it clearly now in verse 3. He's beset with weaknesses, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. Now listen to this. As for the people, so also for himself. So also for himself. This is the key difference. This is 
one of the primary reasons that the author would say that Jesus is the great high priest. Every high priest offered sacrifices. Every high priest stood in the gap as a representative of the people before God. But the high priest under the old covenant had to come and make those blood sacrifices, not just for the sins of those he represented, but for his own self. This is Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7. Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people, that you may make atonement for them, just as the Lord has commanded. So though the author doesn't mention it explicitly here, he's intending for the difference to be screaming at us between the old covenant high priestly role and the way in which Christ is our high priest. This is not subtle. Jesus identified with us, and yet he conquered our weakness by a perfect life. We see that clearly throughout the book of Hebrews, and we'll see it in the coming chapters as well. But that qualified him then to offer the ultimate sacrifice because he's the only high priest. Think of this. Jesus is the only high priest who made his sacrifice solely for others. He didn't make a sacrifice for himself because he had no sins that needed forgiveness. There was no self-interest involved in Christ's sacrifice. The high priest under the old covenant came trembling into the Holy of Holies, trying carefully not to spill that, that bowl of blood because he knew, I'm coming in as a sinner. I'm not just a representative of them. I'm here because I have to be here. And so that's why he wouldn't dare go in without blood to stand between him and the wrath of God. And yet Jesus had the sole interest of bringing glory to the Father by offering his blood as a perfect satisfaction, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people only. He is the great high priest. You know, this should cause us to stop and marvel in amazement at the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I stood in need of atonement just as much as every other Old Testament believer under the Old Covenant. Our sins warranted the penalty of death. We stood separated from God, unable to draw near to Him. We had no business drawing near to Him. You know, and the only reason that we find it difficult to think of religion uh, with this religious system of bringing blood sacrifices is because we have the privilege of living on this side of the cross. That's why it's hard for our minds to think on those things. And it's because Jesus has done something for us that is beyond our wildest imaginations. He came and lived a perfect life so that he could be the ultimate sacrifice, a sacrifice not just to pay for our past sins, but to pay for sin in full, to drink the cup of the wrath of God to its dregs, to take it on our behalf. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to understand the goodness of Christ in the gospel. That if you're not a believer, you still stand separated from God, unable to draw near to him in your own strength or by your own goodness. The Bible says you're a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. But if you'll understand this reality that we're studying this morning, that Jesus came to live a perfect life, to be our great high priest, to be our representative, to offer not the blood of lambs and of goats and of bulls, but to offer his own blood to pay for your sins and then to rise again from the grave. If you'll understand that, put your faith in what Jesus did alone, turning from your sin to follow after him, the Bible says you will be saved that representative blood of Jesus Christ will be applied to you, not just for today, but forever. That is the good news of the gospel. We can't read of of the old covenant priesthood without thinking of what Jesus has done for us. There's a second detail here about the ministry of the high priest. And that detail is in verse 4, the priest's appointment. The priest's appointment, verse 4 says, And no one takes the honor to himself. That is the honor of the office. No one takes the honor to himself. He highlights, first of all, that to be a high priest was a great honor. I would say it was the highest honor. There was no ministry 
position that equaled this. I mean, think about this. The high priest was the only person at that time in the entire world, on the whole planet, that had the privilege on that day of atonement to come into the Holy of Holies. I would say that's an honorable position. It's a position of honor, but the point here really is not to highlight the honor itself, but how one comes to possess this honor. How do you get this? And it gets to the heart of one of the primary questions that the Jewish readers at the time likely would have had. Because the office of high priest, as we discussed previously, could not be attained by self-appointment. The people didn't vote on the high priest. The king didn't have the authority to choose who would serve as the high priest. And this is a significant statement also because, remember, when we studied our Christmas series, we, we talked about the fact that when the Romans came into power, the Roman rulers took the liberty of sinfully choosing who would be the high priest, and they sort of interchanged them as they wanted for their own political advantage. And that's, that's the system that these Jews would have been living under. They would have known what the Scripture says about how the priesthood was supposed to function, but also the dysfunction of what the Romans had created And so it's a big deal here when he says, listen, no one takes this honor to himself. You don't get into the role of the high priesthood unless you come by the right way. What is that right way? Verse 4, no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he's called by God even as Aaron was. Now the mention of Aaron here is significant because it gets to the heart of the real issue that the author is been dealing with here when he's talking about Christ's credentials for the priesthood. As we've already mentioned previously in this study, the high priesthood began with the appointment of Aaron, who is, of course, Moses' brother. And that appointment was made by God himself. That was a divine appointment. He was called into that ministry in front of all of the congregation of the people by God and God alone. But as we've also said... When God did that, he not only declared that Aaron would serve as high priest, but that that privilege would be passed down to his sons. It would create a priestly bloodline of those who would serve as high priest in the future. And this is why it was impossible for a person to be self-appointed. You had to have certain very real credentials to be the high priest. You had to be from not only from the tribe of Levi, but specifically from the bloodline of Aaron himself. Just as the kings of Israel were to come from the bloodline of of Judah, the bloodline of David, the priests were to come from the tribe of Levi and the bloodline of Aaron, the high priest, that is. We read this last week in Numbers 3, verses 5 to 10, but let me just read it again. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood. The layman who comes near shall be put to death. So clearly, God is calling Aaron and his sons into this high priestly role, giving to them the Levites to help them in the task, but he has clearly set them apart. And in fact, this was such a big deal. And by the way, I think this is why it's so important for the author to spend this much time. I mean, we're going to talk about this for a couple of chapters. Why dedicate so much time to proving the priesthood of Christ? Well, understand, it was a big deal for someone to try to usurp the authority of the high priest. And if you doubt that, just think of one example from the scripture from number 16 in Korah's rebellion. You remember Korah's rebellion, number 16, verse 3. Listen to what happens. It says, they, that's the the, the people, they're led by Korah. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, you have gone far enough. Now, talking to Moses and Aaron, you've gone far enough for all the congregation are holy. Listen to that. All of us are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You understand what they're doing? They're challenging the authority of Moses and the authority of Aaron. This was a bold move. They're saying, listen, 
We're, we are all the holy people of God. We've all seen God in our midst. So what gives you the right to exalt yourselves over the rest of us? Well, in response to this, God tells Moses and Aaron to, to have Korah and those who are following him to come and assemble. And they assemble there face to face so that God can show who his true leaders are. And as you'll remember, this is what happens. Number 16, verses 28 to 32. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. What he's saying is, if these guys die a natural death, then I'm not the appointed leader. But, verse 30, But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Verse 31, as he finished speaking all these words. So not a month later, at the end of his speech, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. Now, I think God made it clear that Moses and Aaron were his chosen men. Moses, we've already talked about, but Aaron here in his high priestly role, they didn't appoint themselves. God appointed them. And so now you understand the, the, the reason that maybe the readers, if they're from a Jewish background, are thinking, okay, I'm, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the king, I see that, but how exactly is he a, a priest? Because wasn't that just to Aaron and to Aaron's sons? You see, it's a big deal to make a statement that Jesus is the great high priest. But notice the specific point, the wording is important here. Notice the point that the author of Hebrews is making. Notice how he says it. Verse 4 again, No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it, when he is called by God. Notice he doesn't say, but receives it if he's born as a son of Aaron. That's not what he says. He says he receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. And so he doesn't say here, he's not claiming that Jesus somehow can be from the bloodline of David and from the bloodline of, of Aaron. He's not making that strange claim. What he's pointing to is all the way back to how is it that Aaron got in that position in the first place? It was not by blood originally. It was by divine appointment. What Jesus shares in common with Aaron is not Aaron's physical bloodline. It is the divine appointment of the Father, that God appointed him to this role. It was a divine call. Now, we're going to start to see that next week. In verse 5, he starts to prove that. He's going to bring in some Old Testament passages to help us see that God did indeed declare that the Messiah would serve in this priestly role. But for now, the point is, Christ has this credential, not by bloodline from Aaron, but by divine calling to the office. If you find that to be a stretch, just remember quickly, there were other men in the Old Testament given the privilege of serving in a priestly function who were outside the bloodline of Aaron. The, the primary example, of course, is Samuel. Samuel was not from the bloodline of Levi or certainly from Aaron, but we see that Samuel functioned as the, the last judge over the people, but also as a prophet and even as a priest making sacrifices on behalf of the people. First Samuel chapter 13, you'll remember the, end, the beginning of the end for Saul is that he doesn't wait for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice, but instead Saul gets antsy and he makes the sacrifice himself. And that's the beginning of the end of his rule over Israel. And so my point is that this is not unprecedented in Israel's history for there to be in someone serving in a priestly function who's outside the bloodline of Aaron. But what is in common for each of them is divine calling, divine appointment. God appointed Samuel to that position. God appointed Aaron and his sons to that position. And what the author is going to begin to prove next week is that God appointed his own son to that position in a way that far supersedes every other appointee. But as we let this soak into our hearts and our minds, we need to just step back for a minute and apply these truths to our hearts. And I just want to call us to think on two things. First of all, I want to call us to marvel at God's plan of redemption. 
marvel at God's plan of redemption. I want you to step back for a minute from this passage, to step out of the weeds of the passage and look at it holistically. And I want us to think about these, these details that have been given to us describing the priesthood and the priest's role. And I want you to see how th- this unfolds for us God's beautiful plan of redemption. Just think of what God has done in his sovereign grace to not only declare how we will be saved, but then to bring it to pass step by step down to the smallest minute detail. Think of it this way. Have you ever thought on the fact that God could have, if he knew he was going to save us through his son, he could have just sent Jesus right away after Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus could have just been born very quickly and died for their sins, and then it could have been done. But that's not what God did. God made the promise right there, right away, but he chose not to send his son for some time yet. He begins instead with the promise of a redeemer that will then be progressively revealed over time so that by the time he comes, there will be greater understanding of who he is, who he's supposed to be exactly, and what his ministry is supposed to accomplish. And so after thousands of years of prophecies and the giving of the law and the people struggling under the weight of their sin and trying to fulfill the law, he then chooses to send Christ at exactly the right time. Have you ever considered why? why? Why even get to the point of a priesthood and the sacrifices? Why go through all of those things? Well, the answer to that is multifaceted, that we won't get into every aspect of this morning. But I, I think one of the primary answers is the fact that doing it this way best magnifies the glory of God. You understand that God's desire was, was not simply to redeem us of our sins. Certainly it was that. God is a redeeming God. He always intended to redeem us through his son. But it was also to reveal to us himself. When I say that it shows the glory of God, I mean that in doing it this way, the promises, the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, before bringing his son, reveals to us the character of God. We get to see who God is, so that when God brings us to himself in redemption, and one day when he brings us home to glory, we will not only have the gift of our salvation, we'll have the gift of a deeper knowledge of who God is, because he put it on display. He showed it to us through all of these symbols and rituals and and laws that he gave to the people. He put himself on display that we might know him. And so if you want to apply the truth that we've just heard this morning in a way that strengthens your faith and encourages your prayer life, then just spend some time meditating on all the characteristics of God that are displayed through the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Go through the commands given. This year, if you're reading through the scripture, particularly when you get to the book of Leviticus, don't just skim through, but ask yourself, what do I learn about God when I think about that law or that prescribed sacrifice or the priesthood itself? Because that is the point. To point us to the coming of Christ and to reveal to us the perfect character and nature of God himself. I think that's one of the primary points this morning, that we would think more deeply about Christ and the character of God as we think on the priesthood. Secondly, but along the same lines, contemplate the symbolism of the priesthood specifically. So there's the sacrificial system, but now let's narrow into the priesthood itself. Spend some time this week contemplating this idea of representation. A ministry of representation. What's the significance of that? Think of the fact that the the primary way that the high priest represented the people was through the sacrificial system. Think on the fact that the means that the primary reason the high uh, priest's role was even needed uh, was the reality of sin. This the reality of sin is why the reason, or it is the reason why the high priest came, why we had to have a high priest. Consider the fact that the high priest had to offer sacrifice not only for the sins of the people but for himself. Think about how that must have been for him. The constant weight of his own sin, the sins of the people, the day in and day out laborious task of bringing sacrifice, constantly weighed down realizing that there would need to be more sacrifices because there were more sins. 
points us to the glories of the fact that we have a Redeemer who died once for sins. He died once, past, present, and future. And so when we think on these things, and I think this is the author's point, is to magnify the glory of our high priest and to cause us to have greater appreciation for what it means to be saved by a holy God. He's a holy God. The sacrificial system reminds us, yes, God is perfect in holiness. He's perfect in justice so that that he will not allow a single sin to go unpunished. And yes, we have no right to come into his presence or to draw near to him. But, but God. That's the point. You see, the, 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 the priesthood and his role was a constant uh, highlighter of the fact that we are in need. We're in need of God to do something for us that we can't do. And that's why Paul would say in, to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 9, but God. This is who you were. This is the need that you had. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. When you think on the sacrificial system, the role of the high priest, his representation, and the inadequacy at the end of the day of that system to finally deal an eternal death blow to sin, it turns us to this phrase, but God God sent his son, the great high priest, to do what no other priest could ever do. And so it is, when we think on these things, and when we apprehend them and and meditate upon them in the way that God intends, we find ourselves with a tightened grip on faith and feet that run to him in prayer. And that's the idea this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are overcome with joy as we think on those truths. We see your, your character and your holiness and, and even your mercy in the sacrificial system of the old covenant that even then you made a way. You were offering a way for people to be reconciled to you and yet even at the same time it pointed to the fact that a greater sacrifice was needed and a greater sacrifice was coming. God, we are thankful that we live on this side of the cross in which we look back and we know that that sacrifice has been made, a perfect sacrifice by a perfect Savior, a great high priest, so that sin could be dealt a death blow, an eternal death blow, so that even now we are made right with you if we're in Christ and we have a representative who stands in your very presence. God, help these things to strengthen our faith, to give us boldness in prayer and gratitude for your grace and kindness to us. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.